look what's happened to the land. It's devastating. I've been to some of these areas that have been burnt and they're just devastated. People have lost their lives, homes, millions of animals, millions of plants. Heart-wrenching. Look, I can't, you know, like it's hard to think about it in a negative mindset because it's just crippling. It's not a new story for us. We've been taught this story like when, you know, you lose your way and you don't look after country, then you get sick. Do you think that this is an important turning point? I absolutely do. If it's not the turning point, you know, there is no hope. On March the 3rd, the New South Wales Rural Fire Service declared that, for the first time in 240 days, there were no active bushfires in the state. The torrential rains that lashed the east coast of Australia helped to mark the end of the worst bushfire season the country had seen in over a decade. 28 people lost their lives, over 3,000 homes were destroyed, and up to 1 billion animals died. But as the news cycle moves on, Oliver Costello is just one of many, warning now is not the time to turn our heads, to forget our anger. On this episode, how do we heal an ecosystem traumatised by fire? And why aren't we listening to fire management recommendations from past inquiries? You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Clearly, a lot has happened since we last spoke to Oliver on Think Sustainability. As the CEO of the Firesticks Alliance Corporation, he's been busy helping to clean up the aftermath of the bushfires. Oliver's been advocating for sustainable fire regimes and hazard reduction measures informed by Indigenous knowledge for years, without as much progress as he'd like. So, when Oliver heard Prime Minister Scott Morrison's announcement of a royal commission into the fires back in February, he wasn't particularly optimistic. Someone who shared his scepticism upon hearing the news was Dr Kevin Tolhurst, Kevin is an Associate Professor of Fire Ecology and Management at the University of Melbourne. He's given expert advice to about seven public inquiries, reviews and royal commissions into Australian fires, of which there have been 57 since 1939. And a lot of those recommendations have been left to the dust. There's a lot of discussion about it soon after a disaster, but uh, people's memories soon drop and the importance of it drops off. So we're talking about um, at least 10 or 20 years to really see the the full benefit of uh, good fire management. And in political terms, that's too long. The support for having a program in place that achieves the outcomes over such a long period is is difficult for governments to uh, sustain their support for. And Indigenous fire management methods like Oliver's have been tabled at these inquiries. 
One of the national goals of the 2009 Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission was to promote Indigenous Australians' knowledge of fire management, like cultural burning. Kevin warns that using time and resources on a new Royal Commission would be a waste of time, and that, instead, we should simply implement the recommendations of all the past ones. So a lot of the framework and thinking has already been done. Uh, it's a matter of getting behind that and providing the uh, resources to do it. And the resources aren't just dollars, as I say. It's also about making sure we're recruiting the right people and we're uh, training people with a level of expertise to deal with the complexities and the sophistication that fire management really requires. Majority of fire regimes in Australia are conducted by government agencies, like the National Parks and Wildlife Service in New South Wales. Much of these regimes involve hazard reduction burns, that is, stripping out the bottom level of the forest or the grasses and shrubs to limit fuel for intense fires. And although hazard reduction burns are very similar to cultural burning practices, they lose much of the complexity of the latter. We can learn a lot from Indigenous burning that talks about that customising of fire in the landscape to uh, to customise it to the, the weather conditions we have, to customise it to the different parts of the landscape, to, uh, to deal with different species uh, in the landscape, so that we're using fire as a, a proper land management tool rather than just as a way of getting rid of undesired fuels in the landscape. The Fire Sticks Alliance Indigenous Corporation focuses on these complexities, on slow burns that give animals notice to flee the fire front, or to clear room for small plants to re-emerge, drawing animals back. We burn throughout the year, but often it's in the cooler times um, to keep the temperatures, um, you know, the flame and the, the, the fire intensity down. So all the different ecosystems come together into different country types. Um, and so we burn them at different times, you know, like, um, so you end up burning, you know, fairly regularly across the landscape in different places over different timescales and end up with these mosaics. And so that's sort of what, you know, like cultural fire management does. It creates diversity um, in the, the fire regimes and diversity in the plants and animals so that everything and everyone has uh, what they need. Whereas standard hazard reduction burns focus on larger areas of land. After the 2009 Black Saturday Fires Royal Commission, Victoria implemented a plan to burn 5% of public land each year. But this goal partly failed because it targeted land that posed little risk to communities anyway. So if it's like you have to burn so much amount, you know, so much of the landscape this year, uh, it misses the point. This is Brad Murray. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Life Sciences uh, here at UTS. He says cultural burning can inform current practices. Hazard reduction activities uh, you know, I think they've been shown recently that they're not the panacea, they're not going to stop uh, wildfires. Regions that went up with intense fires recently had, for instance, some regions had experienced hazard reduction burns just a month previously. Uh, and I think this is where cultural um, burning practices can really inform us because it helps us to look at parts of the landscape that need burning, not just a total amount that we just you know, take, burn off in some remote area where it has no effect. Uh, it, it's about burning the right places at the right time with a view to not just um, asset protection, but biodiversity. Oliver says he's noticed a difference. Particularly in the last couple of years, the fires have gone out when they've gone into those areas. So they've like literally like where the fire meets where we'd burnt like 18 months ago or six months ago or three years ago or whatever, the fire's just gone out or it's gone into it maybe 10 or so metres and gone out. You know, in other areas, the fire's carried through 
um, but the impacts on those areas are much lesser. You know, there hasn't done so much damage to the environment there. But the impact hasn't been widespread enough. They're not they're not the outcomes that we'd love to show. We'd love to show you a whole landscape where we've had a cultural fire regime and the impacts of that because a burn here and a burn there is not, you know, you can't hang your hat on that. You know, the idea of cultural fire management is it's a landscape thing. It's like you have like all the country types burn at the right time and then that way you don't have the opportunity for these big wildfires to occur. We rely on, you know, donations, volunteers, small grants. We're trying to pull together the resources for a national cultural sort of fire practitioner framework. So an Indigenous-led training and mentoring program that brings together knowledge holders and, and, and cultural fire practitioners from across the country. You know, those recommendations, you know, hopefully the recommendations of future Royal Commissions and inquiries can actually, one, be informed by best practice knowledge of country, but can also then turn into best practice through supporting, um, you know, Indigenous led fire management regimes back into these landscapes so we can heal the country from the damage and mismanagement, we can heal the country from the fires and we can heal the people that want to have a true connection to these landscapes. to get that discussion going rather than relying on saying okay we've done all this research we've we've put it into published papers we've done all this monitoring we've got all, the, all in this database and we've got all this wonderful technology with all this knowledge is it doesn't matter how many papers are sitting on the shelf and how many um, gigabytes of data you've got there it actually needs to be in the people's heads that are actually doing the management and to make sure that they understand the land and can read the land and understand the role of fire plays there. So that's what I say, it's a very different uh, skill set to a firefighter, which is much more a response-focused uh, training. We actually need people trained that really understand the land. And working with the Indigenous people is a great way of both acknowledging the knowledge that uh, Indigenous Australians have but also improving uh, how we actually manage the land in a modern environment. The fires ravaging Australia's east coast over summer have had a devastating impact on the ecosystem. The problem is, not all of the damage is immediately obvious to the untrained eye. That's going to be one of the legacy issues of this recent um, wildfire season, that there's going to be huge areas that are um, were really sick um, and they're going to come back even sicker. You know, vegetation can change very rapidly and people will see that over the next months and years. They'll see landscapes that are just black sticks turn into green things again and they'll think, oh, the environment's responding. But what they don't understand is that a lot of the wrong um, relationships are going to be in place there. What people have come to understand as the truth is not necessarily the truth because there's a longer time scale. And so that's one of the challenges that we've seen over the last couple of hundred years since colonisation. There's a whole heap of like natural sort of ecosystems that have evolved through a lack of um, appropriate management into quite unhealthy systems. This lack of knowledge of the right vegetation on the right land means some fire practitioners may fail to stop the growth of invasive species. If you don't start to manage some of those invasive natives really early on, before they get um, sort of too big and too strong um, for our like cultural fire regimes or more low-intensity fire regimes, um, 
they'll start to then become really dominant and they'll start to then suppress the biodiversity um, and suppress a lot of the kind of species that belong there and, and, and then become probably somewhat sort of stable and dormant for some time. But then uh, as they mature um, and start to senesce, about 10 years or 15 years, they, they can become very um, susceptible to high-intensity fires again. Other changes to the ecosystem are just as slow and therefore just as hidden. When the plants, you know, all the trees start to regrow, you know, all the epicomic growth and they start to shoot off all the trunks and, you know, that's all energy that they you know, would be putting into their core structure, their trunk getting bigger, their canopies getting stronger. So, and those, those, a lot of those trees are being hit um, over the last, you know, 100 years over and over again with wildfires. We're losing those trees and with the drought as well, we're losing all of our parent trees. So we're seeing all these structural changes in the ecosystem. Like we know because of our cultural understanding of resource use and oral history and our understanding of country, we know those landscapes are sick. Australia as a whole really did experience a very uh, traumatic period of time. Uh, I know it was, it was not a very peaceful time over the Christmas for myself and my family. After the fires, Brad was inspired to start researching again. I want to. I want to really, really go much harder on my research. I really want to. Uh, uh, I want to do as much as I can uh, for fire management, but also for the conservation of biodiversity in that in that context. I like to look at how different species do different things. So different plants, they look different, and they just do different things. Uh, and so I've taken that approach to looking at flammability, and it's like, well, some species, are they more flammable than others? And so that forms the, the scientific backbone, if you like, of green fire breaks. The idea of green fire breaks is to plant low flammable species and vegetation in large strips across the landscape to stop or slow down bushfires. The method isn't new to Oliver. So one of the things that, that you know that I learned very early on, you'd burn around particularly like rainforest interfaces to create the kinship line between rainforest country and the other country, which might be like uh, grassy or grassland or things that like more fire. And so what happens is, you know, create this sort of green fire break. Uh, you know, the good fire will go out, but that'll also help to put out the bad fire too because you're managing the relationship between the fire country and the less fire-prone country. We've been doing something like that for thousands of years. So you might be wondering how the flammability of plants are assessed. We've set up what we, what's called a plant barbecue. It's up on the roof over here, in one of, yeah, in, uh, uh, on top of the science building, and uh, if you see smoke coming off the building, sometimes it'll just be myself and my students burning plants. So what we're burning in that case is, is 70 centimetre long shoots from plants. So that not only has all the plant parts, but it has their architecture. And they're looking for a number of things. How quickly does it ignite? Ignitability. How long does it burn for? Which is called sustainability. Uh, and um, then how intensely does it burn? Which we call combustibility. So, for instance, an introduced species called lantana, uh, it will ignite really quickly, but then it, it doesn't burn for very long. So it ignites and it's out almost quick, as quickly. Uh, other species, like some of the eucalypts, for instance, will burn with a with great intensity. So we're seeing some really interesting variation um, amongst species so far. Uh, and you know, big question now is is how does leaf flammability scale up to the larger plant parts?
During the bushfire season, a report went viral on social media. One quote was shared thousands of times. It read, Fire seasons will start earlier and end slightly later and generally be more intense. This effect increases over time, but should be directly observable by 2020. The chilling quote was written by economist Ros Garneau, who 12 years ago led an independent study of the impacts of climate change on the Australian economy. For most, the effects of a warming climate has been no surprise. Climate change is affecting areas once fire retardant, like moist and dark rainforests, which are now burning, with leaves drying out and becoming flammable. Fireproof invasive species are taking over ecosystems. And fires themselves are so intense, they're creating their own weather patterns. In terms of what's happening in the future, yeah, fires will become, will, will be this intense as they've been. Uh, there'll be more intense fires, more frequent fires. Um, you know, unless we really, really get on top of climate change. That's, that's one of the key drivers. But when Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced a royal commission into the fires, climate change was merely acknowledged. Rather, the commission was to focus on disaster response. So it's like saying we're going to solve the national health problem by buying more ambulances. A lot of the, the terms of reference to the royal commission is how should we react in the face of these disasters to... Uh, to deal at the time of the disaster rather than looking at how can we prevent these disasters from occurring in the first place. Other than looking at whether we should be using the army, whether we need more aircraft, whether we need uh, more firefighters and so on, uh, we ought to be looking at the other end. How can we actually reduce the, the need for all these emergency services uh, in the long term? So, yes, we need those emergency response uh, resources but wouldn't it be great if we only needed half as many and they could do the job much better because there's less pressure on them? So I think um, it's looking at the wrong end of the problem in a sense. I live up in the hills behind um, Byron Bay and Lismore. So I live in sort of fairly like rainforesty dominated sort of landscapes. I live up sort of on the ridge lines. Got, uh, yeah, uh, hoop pines and all sorts of, yeah, beautiful sort of um, trees in the landscape around us. Gum tree and box, like um, brush box. And the hoop pine is the totem of the Wijibawaibal people where I am uh, now and near where I live. Our society was built on an interconnected relationship with country. The plants and animals are our family. The trees make the air that we breathe. They were here before us. They've looked after us for thousands of years. Shelter, you know, from the sun, from the rain. They've given us food. The same with the animals. They've taught us all these laws and stories and practices. You know, we're all connected. Oliver says it's important to question your own narrative. Everybody's ancestors go back to a connection to land. It's in everybody's DNA, but people have been colonised. People need to reflect on that, like what parts of their identity are actually not theirs. They're actually things that they've been imposed on them, that have been ingrained in them, 
or that they've assumed because it benefits them, but it's not actually true to them. You know, no, nobody wants to be clouded in smoke and be threatened by fire and to see all their, you know, life and property and resources burnt. It's really important for all people to understand that connection and to support their own identity and connection so they can become a part of those systems so they can look after them. We, we tend to uh, look at the world quite uh, almost industrial sort of processes where we expect every year is the same. Um, when it becomes the 1st of January, something's going to happen. Um, the 30th of June is the end of the financial year. I mean, the world is more, the natural environment is much more complex than the, the way that we uh, deal with it in our sort of uh, simplistic, civilised sort of view of the world. When we're dealing with the natural world, we need to be a lot more flexible to deal with those complexities and the interactions that are going on. So we, we're not going to solve the problem with some uh, set uh, steps of 1 to 10. We actually need to uh, be much more sophisticated about that. There's a lot of similarity in what um, different groups might want. People who are interested in, in the science, in the outcomes, in the positive outcomes, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, and I think those similarities are we want to have a defensible landscape. We want to have a landscape that protect lives, biodiversity uh, and assets. The houses we live in, um, uh, transport, but also uh, cultural um, features of the landscape and, and places that are culturally important. I think it's just an acceptance of the importance of a range of interests in this, but that we do have common goals. Uh, and if we all you know, work towards that and inform each other uh, sensibly, uh, I think we can, we, can, we can make a change, yeah. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.